Good morning. The scripture can be found on page 1015, 1015. It's um, in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10, and they'll be up here, or I hope you'll hear all the words I'm saying because I've got a little scratch in there. Um, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. And the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The stumbling because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are chosen, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. Um, Once you had not received mercies, but now you have received mercies. Incidentally, there's a test on this scripture after this. So you will notice that I will use the podium microphone. Our two young whippersnapper pastors uh, use the wireless, but uh, with a role here of the very word elder, you will not be surprised that I am old school. (laughs) Neither will my son, who teases me of my age every day, and even asking me uh, what it was like to speak with Moses. (laughs) He does do that. All right, um, let's see, water, notes, sound, PowerPoint. So with God's help, I believe we're ready to begin. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is great to be gathered in your name. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and you have revealed yourself to us through your word. We pray that that word uh, would be so active today as we look into it uh, to help understand you better and and change our lives and to spread the good news to others to change more lives. In Christ's name, amen. So today is March 8th. On this day, my brother Steve would have turned 59. Also, on this day, you would not see me here. I would be in London with my brother. That was our way of ensuring we had time together each year. He would fly there from Philadelphia and me from Boston or Chicago in former days. We met there because London was Steve's favorite place. His nickname at work was London Steve. Um, he, um, we did that on that day, on this day, at this time of year, on his birthday, because as he got older, he, he came up with the argument that if you celebrated your birthday outside of this country, uh, the years didn't accumulate toward your age. That was Steve. On the very last of these trips, we took a day trip out to Canterbury. While we were in the cathedral, I observed Steve light one of the candles in the area where hundreds of candles had been lit for purposes of remembrance or to make a special plea. I knew my my brother well, and I knew that there were only two possibilities for which he would part with the one-quid coin, uh, 
that you would need to place in the jar as part of this tradition. So it was very hushed in the cathedral. So I whispered a question to him. Mamam, which in our South Jersey dialect translates to grandmother. Um, Steve responded with a sheepish grin. That meant that the candle lighting was for the other possible reason. So I whispered again, no longer in the form of a question, Newcastle. His favorite English football club were in danger of being relegated to the lower division that season. I knew Steve very well. He was family. He was my brother. Uh, his loss was the most difficult uh, pain point I've ever had. So today we'll be reading from the letter of First Peter. I would encourage you to read this letter yourselves through the rest of the week. Peter was writing to believers in Jesus who were geographically dispersed, and the intent of Peter's letter was to clarify the unique identity um, of the family of Christian believers and to teach those believers how to live together. We sometimes in church call each other brothers and sisters. This is true in the most profound sense. This morning's talk will include a tale of two church buildings. The location of both is the center of the town of Woodstock, Vermont, which, according to a sign there, uh, was voted the prettiest town in America. On the left is the Woodstock North Universal Chapel, and on the right, the First Congregational Church of Woodstock. Since moving to New England, I've noticed so many of the town, in so many of these towns, the church buildings they're of remarkable beauty, but I know from the signs in front of them that they have very different ways of understanding God. This was not always the case. If I could manage to study one year of, uh, for one year one bit of history, learning what happened to divide the unity of New England's congregational churches would be a topic that I would gladly go after. Without having had that year, though, I did some initial research. In the years following the American Revolutionary War, there were challenges to the established New England Christian faith on several fronts. The main division was between the Congregational Church and emerging Unitarianism. By the 1750s, several Congregational preachers were teaching the possibility of universal salvation, a term that means that all people because of divine love and mercy, will ultimately be reconciled to God. The first church in the United States with an openly Unitarian theology was King's Chapel, Boston, in 1785. By 1800, all but one congregational church building in Boston had Unitarian preachers teaching the strict unity of God, the subordinate nature of Christ, and salvation by character instead of grace through faith. Horrible. Jesus, they said, was not God. They maintained that Jesus is in some sense the Son of God, but not the one God. It rejected the Holy Trinity, the heart of biblical Christianity without which the gospel cannot stand. Unitarianism was an expression of rationalistic influences which objected to the sovereignty of God. Harvard University, which had been founded by Congregationalists, became the center of Unitarian training. In 1825, the Unitarian churches separated from the Congregationalists. 
how quickly false teaching that is humanly appealing can spread. This shift was heavily drawing on a time period known as the Enlightenment, which developed over the prior century. The Enlightenment was a time when cultural and intellectual forces in Western Europe emphasized reason, analysis, and individualism rather than traditional lines of authority. With reason as our guide, the so-called Enlightenment argued we can all become moral and tolerant good citizens. The Enlightenment called people to trust reason. The Enlightenment taught that if we could all agree on what is reasonable, we could all live together with a certain set of commonly shared values, a new kind of unity. For many, faith in human progress replaced faith in the God who gave the Bible. Science, which had originally begun as a discipline to study God's creation and therefore God himself, it changed. The world said this movement is a, is a world on an ever upward path of progress. The world embraced this thinking. This thinking you will find very present still in our day. During this period of time, Jesus began, began to be thought of as someone completely different than he, who he claimed to be in the scriptures. And God was kicked upstairs to a more remote place of thought. This has left the kings, rulers, prime ministers, presidents for the past 200 years, for the most part, to live as though they were the ones, and they are the ones ruling the world. So let's hear from these two church buildings. First, the North Universal Chapel, from their welcome statement. I will read their welcome statement uh, to you. The North Universal Chapel Society honors and welcomes diverse paths to the divine and strives to be a loving spiritual community through mindful action. Who we are. It is not uncommon for people unfamiliar with the society to ask some form of the question, what is this? Who are you? It is always a joy to try to answer that question on behalf of this community of generous, happy, and soulful people who sometimes, when we gather together, call it church. Perhaps I would begin by saying that this is nothing much, this gathering, this organization. It is not that big a deal. It is not salvation. It is not with any certainty the gathering of the chosen people of God. We are fairly circumspect about morality in general. There is not even any confident claim that I know of of a rendering to the truth, although we do offer our own perspectives. It is just a sweetness, a pause for those whose lives are hectic, a communion for ordinary people. Well, let's hear from the other church in our tale of two churches, also in a beautiful building in Woodstock, Vermont. Um, in this one, we have Norm Coop teaching Sunday school, preaching in the mornings and evenings, and driving over to Hanover, New Hampshire, to teach Dartmouth students each week. Norm is a friend of mine. Norm preaches the gospel. From their website, you can read this. First Congregational is a church where you will find reverent, Christ-centered worship, warm, caring fellowship, and a commitment to evangelism and missions. 
This church believes the Bible to be the inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word of God, its only sufficient rule of faith and practice. Further, Article 1 of their Statement of Faith says, We believe that there is one living and true God in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, from John 14, 26. You must admit there are there is a massive difference of these two visions of the people who gather in these two church buildings. You may have noticed that I've been careful to use the reference church building rather than church. I'll tell you why I've done that. You may be familiar with the children's expression. There's the church. Uh, there's a steeple. Look inside. I can't do the hand signals. right? Look inside. There are the people. Do you remember that one? You know that one? Well, it's really nice, but it's completely wrong. Uh, it should be. There's the building. There's the distinctive, unique architectural feature, the features of the building. Look inside. And there's the church, if there are people in there that day, and if those people are, are, uh, are Christian believers. Now, I realize that doesn't rhyme and is unlikely to catch on with the youth, but it is accurate. The biblical word translated to church means gathering. What it cannot mean is buildings, structures, or institution. So if these buildings don't matter much, what holds the church together as one, since we are scattered all across the globe? And the answer is this. The true church is comprised of the people who have gathered around Jesus. The true church is comprised of the people who have gathered around Jesus. So now let's have a look at First Peter. Peter, some, some context for you, Peter writes to Christians who are living in a pagan world and they were not fitting in. And consequently, the people around them found them very strange. It says that in chapter 4, verse 4. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living and they heap abuse on you. Now remember, this is Peter who is writing, who had the experience of Jesus saying to him, And I tell you that you are Peter, the name translating rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That's from Matthew 16, 18. F.F. Bruce comments on the significance of this verse to the church. The fact that Peter was prepared to confess Jesus as the Messiah was evidence that a change had at last begun to take place in his thinking that he was starting to understand the term Messiah in the light of what Jesus actually was and did, rather than to understand Jesus in the light of ideas traditionally associated with him, with the term. Hence the pleasure with which Jesus greeted the response, and hence the blessing which he pronounced on him. Jesus said, in effect, now at last I can begin to build. And Peter understood his role was to form the community of true disciples who will carry on Jesus' mission after his departure. Well, uh, you know from Suki in her reading that I promised you a test, uh, and we are going to have that now. So you may form, I'm going to give you ten questions. You may form the answers uh, in your head, and we'll see how we do. If you want to score yourselves, that's fine too. 
so, and I'll help you with the uh, scripture passages that we uh, put up at the time. So, question one, what is this section about? Answer, the living church of God. If you put worship, you may put yourself down for extra credit. Uh, question two, who is the living stone of verse four? Answer, Jesus. Question three, who are the living stones of verse five? Answer, believing Christians who have come to Jesus. Question four, the living stone can be two different things, either blank or blank. Answer, verse six, a cornerstone, or verse eight, uh, a stumbling block. Question five, what are Christians called in this passage apart from living, apart from the living stones? Answer, priests, or more strictly, a priesthood, already, without being ordained? Question six, this priesthood has the power of pleasing God. What does it have to do? Answer, offer sacrifices. And how this happens, we'll, we'll work on this later. Question seven, Peter has used this theme of a stone that was rejected by men, but chosen by God, in a famous sermon. Where was that? Now, this is what I call a Bruce Borland moment. Bruce is searching his banks of memorized scripture backwards and forwards. Has he landed on Acts 4? It's Acts 4, starting in 7 and going to 11, where it says, This is the stone that was rejected by you builders. Question 8. To whom does the title, The Chosen Race, apply? The answer is Jews in the Old Testament and in, and in the New Testament, the church. Question nine, what is God doing when he calls someone? Now, if you put invites, you get half credit. That's not quite strong enough. God's call is a powerful one, and what he's doing is changing people. So change is a full credit answer. Last question, what is the distinctive mark of the people of God? Answer, they have received mercy. Well, that completes the test, and now the homework. Uh, let me cover the assignment. The assignment is to dig deeper into the Old Testament reference points that Peter uses in this section of the letter. For starters, you would explore this list, although, although there's more. All of these references are part of the understanding uh, for this morning's te uh, uh, text. And uh, as I was reviewing this yesterday, it also came to me that all three sections of the Hebrew canon of Scripture, law, writings, and prophets, are all referenced within seven verses, which is, you know, remarkable. So Peter's main concern in this text is that his readers understand their identity. In other words, who are the people of God? And we begin to answer that question in verse 4. Christians are a people who long for their Lord. Come to Jesus. Peter wants them to come to Jesus. This does not mean to observe Jesus or to ponder Jesus. It's not just an academic exercise. Christians are people who long for their Lord. Next, Christians are people who form a spiritual house. 
Christians are described as living stones, the walls of the house. We all have a common work to do in our unity. That man, Lovering, sitting right there, has no more accountability to live out the Christian faith than any of us. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Priesthood? What an interesting word to describe the New Testament church. This is temple language. Why is this used? In the Old Testament, the temple symbolized God's presence with his people. The temple was a foreshadowing of Christ's presence throughout the Old Testament era. Christ is the temple toward which all earlier temples looked and which they anticipated. Uh, one of your homework assignments, Second Samuel seven twelve to 14, is a great reference here. That's God's covenant with David about a forever kingdom and a house that would not be constructed by Solomon. Jesus repeated claim that forgiveness now comes through him and no longer through the sacrificial system of the temple informs us that he was taking over the function of the temple. And in fact, the forgiveness he now offered was what the temple had imperfectly pointed to all along. The Christian community is now portrayed as a temple, implying that it, not the stone building, is the place of God's dwelling a place of true worship and acceptable sacrifice. So we have noted that the true church is comprised of the people who have gathered around Jesus. To sum up this section, the temple physical building is now described as a spiritual building made up of different people, young and old, male and female, who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. Next, we come to three Old Testament quotations that solidify the point just made. Peter piles Old Testament images upon images because he recognizes that the planning that went into God's building project draws upon the entire Bible. For it stands in Scripture, verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This first reference is from Isaiah 28:16. In its context, Isaiah speaks against the leaders and rulers who think that their city cannot be overthrown, particularly the physical temple. They think they are secure, but Isaiah instructs them that their supposed security is not secure at all. Peter then adds, so the honor is for you who believe. Honor is the subject of this sentence. The honor is for you who believe. Christ's honor is transferred to those who believe in him. It's amazing. This contrasts with what's next. For those builders who would not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now the quotation is from Psalm 118, and its context, as many of Peter's readers would know, describes the return of the king to the temple to give thanks for a victory. In that case, the king is David, and the builders are the foreign nations that had rejected the rule of God's appointed king of Israel. By rejecting Jesus, the Jewish leaders, the builders in this example, have behaved like the pagan nations of David's day. 
Verse 8 continues the thought, and Peter drives his point home with an allusion now to Isaiah 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disbelieve. They have the wrong response. Faith in Jesus is the required response. The faith, this is the faith that holds the church together. All who come to Jesus build on that cornerstone rather than stumble and fall through disbelief. Peter returns to teaching Christian identity in verse 9. Christians are a people who are God's own possession. Peter now uses Exodus language. Compare Exodus 19.5 with 1 Peter 2.9. From Exodus, now if you obey me, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Notice that was spoken to all of Israel and not just to the priests. Now from First Peter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The but you makes the transition clear, transferring to the church the titles of Old Testament Israel. This is an updating, old covenant to new. The church are the people of God. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now we transition from Christian identity to Christian behavior. We have a calling. The church is called a priesthood, and priests offer sacrifices. So how are we to do that in our day? What is our response? First, we worship. We are instructed as God's church to offer up to God Almighty the worship that is due his name, to tell his story as witnesses to what Jesus did, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The message we give is not our testimony, it's God's. The worship God is looking for has to do with our daily lives, not just Sunday mornings. This is our t- We worship God here together, and this is wonderful. The calling is every day. We need to continually give thanks. Hebrews helps us here in 1315. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and share and to share with others. For such sacrifices, God is pleased. We need to serve one another. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And lastly, we are to understand God's mercy. God's mercy forms the frame of this opening section of Peter's letter, a section which begins in uh, chapter 1-3 and runs through 2-10. And remember, as we read these two verses about mercy, how well Peter personally knew what it was like to receive mercy. This is Peter 
who having denied his Lord three times, was reinstated by Jesus, reinstated to ministry three times by Jesus in John 21. So 1 Peter 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. And in 2.10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our unity in this gathering has a common characteristic, mercy. How would, the, how would that look at the top of your CV? Have received mercy. I've been building a new team in my workplace. HR puts the postings online and people respond with their qualifications. Let me tell you something. Whatever varying talents people may declare on their resumes, the one that they have in abundance is the ability to describe how qualified they are, um, as they should. I mean, you have you need to do that. I'm, I'm glad they did. It helps. It's a competitive economy, and you need to stand out. But not one of these resumes that I've received said, have received mercy. But from God's perspective, every one of ours needs to say that right at the top. What holds the church together as one? It is the mercy that comes from the gospel of Jesus. The true church is comprised 100% of mercy receivers. It is essential to our identity and thus to our unity. Some of our some of our, our squabbles, if we consider this fact more often, might certainly be put into perspective. Remember the welcome statement from the North Chapel Universal, Universalist Society earlier? Remember their comments about their identity. Nothing much, not a big deal, not salvation, not a chosen people. The Westgate family responds to the same question of identity humbly by saying that the true church is comprised of people who have received mercy and joyfully, in response to this, have gathered around Jesus. Our Westgate website reads this. We are a congregation of flawed and hurting sinners who have found hope and forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel is good news. It is the message of the Bible, and it tells the story of how God has established his kingdom and dealt with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. It is a story of mercy and hope, a promise that God is making all things new. The gospel of Jesus is all we have, and it is enough. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are a people who have received mercy uh, through your plan of salvation, through Jesus, and we gather around Jesus. Thank you that you are such a great God. You have thrown a lifeline to us and saved us. We thank you for that. And, Lord, may we be witnesses uh, of what you have done to others so that they, too, may understand and see this truth. Praise you for this time that we can gather as a family here at Westgate this morning. We pray this in Jesus, the Savior. Amen.